All right, so we all know about the coronavirus. I mean, literally, who hasn't heard about the coronavirus? So who hasn't heard about the coronavirus? Okay. Who's an introvert? Come on. I know, I'm sorry. I'm putting you guys on the spot. Okay, cool. So um, we were given advice for the coronavirus. So the CDC put out to prevent it from spreading. You need to stay at home. You need to avoid all physical contact. And don't go into large crowds. So all the introverts are like, yes, I've been preparing for this my whole life. Sorry, the introverts will only get that. Sorry. I heard a preach uh, by Graham Cook, who preached on introverts. And actually, it's okay. We, we can still be introverts. We maybe can move towards being ambiverts, but God made us the way we are. Promise. It's okay, guys. Extroverts, it's all right. It's all right. Everybody's looking at me weirdly. It's okay. All right. Uh, I'm just settling. Um, so, the gospel. Who's been enjoying the service? I mean, the, the series. Who's kind of thought, ah, oh, I knew about the gospel and found out, like, actually, you've learned something. Okay. So, that's the whole point, is that we're always learning about God. There's always something new that he has for us. And I don't think we'll ever run out, even in eternity, of finding out who he is and learning something more about what he has for us. So for somebody like me, that's really cool because I, I really fear getting bored. I don't want to not stop learning. I mean, my, the stuff that I choose, not what schools would tell me. School was very boring. Okay. So we unpacked so many elements of the gospel Gary, last week, I even listened to it, babe, on the podcast. I don't listen to I read. I don't listen, but I did. So I thought I was pretty clever. You can all think, like, clap. No, I'm keys. Um, guys are so serious this morning. <laughs> all right. So, Gary, so I'm going to speak about the gospel in terms of our image. You know, it says in uh, Genesis, God says, let us make them in the image of God. Who knows that? Who's read that? Genesis 1, 26? Some of you. Okay. Do you know what the Bible is? No, I'm teasing. All right. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. All right. So last week, Gary spoke about a life lived out of biblical wisdom. He spoke, he's kind of been unpacking the Bible, the scriptures, and what it means, and all that. And I'm going to take a little bit of a leap, and I'm going to go on to... We have to realize that Jesus is not our cosmic life coach. You know, he kind of gives you guidelines on how to live, principles. I think some of us do view Jesus like that. He's actually not that. And I'm going to unpack more of that and why and who we are within Jesus. Okay. So, because you know what? We need a, an eternal perspective because the gospel reigns, doesn't live in the earthly realm. The gospel lives, is of an eternal nature, therefore it lives in the unseen realm. It's of supernatural quality, therefore it doesn't run out. And we have to start getting that, not only in our minds, but in our hearts too. I did it. Okay, I want to read you a, a quote. I have to go get my eyes checked. This is so irritating. <laughs> Biblical wisdom. Involves not only practical, principle, decision-making skills, but eternal perspective. 
Eternal perspective requires understanding what makes God tick. That's only discoverable with a firm grasp of who God is, what he's done, why he's done it, and what else does he intend to do, and why he doesn't want to do it alone. Grasping biblical theology is the means to these discoveries. And without grasping biblical theology, it is impossible without knowing the Bible broadly and deeply. And Gary's unpacked that we can't read the Bible through the lens of our current modern mindset. We have to go into the context of what it, who the writers were and why they were writing it. So we can't go viewing it through Instagram or viewing it through our life or even viewing it through school or how we grew up, our culture, our ethnicity. It's not about that. It's about viewing it why God chose to write it there and then and what their culture was. So one of the aspects that I want to kind of look through is this Greek and Hebrew mindset. Now, everybody's like, why are you going on about that? Now, what's so important between the Greek and the Hebrew? We can say the Eastern and Western mindset. But the whole idea is because the Bible was written in a Hebraic mindset, we have to start understanding what they were thinking when they wrote what they wrote. Unfortunately, we live in an age where the, Heb the Greek way of thinking, it's not we're not ditching Greeks. We're not ditching their culture. But this is a pervasive mindset that's come through and entered into the church that affects how we interpret when we read Scripture. So it's really important that we start unpacking why we sometimes don't get what Scripture's saying and why sometimes it seems so puzzling and like, what's the big deal about some things? So we have to start unpacking this to realize that maybe, and maybe acknowledging that some of our mindsets are not God's. So when I say Hebraic, is we must understand that, and I'll unpack it a little bit more next week, is that God chose Abraham, and he chose Israel as his nation. That means that he imparted to them some of his way of thinking. So they're not perfect in their thinking. They probably have a better way, and this is the ancient Hebraic way of thinking, has a better way of understanding God and his mindset than we do. So this is why I'm harping on, the, this is why I keep studying it, this is why we need to start understanding it. It's not to say that they were perfect, but they do have a better, deeper understanding of what God wants us to know. Okay just to help you there. So the Greek mindset is very individualistic. You see it in the world today quite often. If you, pretty much any, any person who's on some kind of social media is going, it's all about me. Very individualistic. It's not about community anymore. It's about my impact. I want to believe what I want to believe. When Jesus was asked by Pilate, Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? And Jesus doesn't answer him. That is a typical um, confrontation between the Greek and the Hebrew mindset. Greek thinking as well, what is truth? 
Hebrew thinking is God is truth. We don't need to respond and we don't need to react to that. There is no answer because God is the answer. Okay, so Greek way of thinking. When it comes to the Bible, and this I'm applying to God as well as church. So you need to first convince me emotionally or church leaders or God or whoever. First convince me. You need to then prove to my logical brain until I am satisfied. Then, if I'm satisfied, I will try doing it for as long as I feel okay, or maybe until the payoff for me is good, or until I deem maybe the payoff's not good for me. That's how we think. That is so persuasive in our thinking. So when we come to church, the questions that we are kind of extending to people is, or to, like, to church leaders and to God, it's like, come on, convince me. Prove to me, but on an emotional level only, and I'm only going to kind of be satisfied if I believe that this is true and I feel okay about it. Okay. Sorry, it's not a fun thing because it hit me hard because I'm like, I do this with God too. I'm like, hey, you need to prove to me that you're a God of signs and wonders until I'm satisfied. So when I hear about a testimony of somebody being healed, do you know what I do in my head? I'm like, hmm, I don't know if I'm satisfied with that. I don't know, maybe I need proof. Don't we do that? Maybe they're making it up. Maybe they're exaggerating. Okay, the Hebraic way. And another thing about the, the, the Greek mindset is spirituality is outside of us. It's otherworldly. It's kind of, it's not really a part of us. Okay. And in worship, we have a form of hero worship. Not necessarily Hebraic worship. So God is something to be idolized. He's celebrated. Yes, we like to do that. Kind of like when you go to a rugby match, if your team is winning. So if God's team's winning, then we celebrate him. We can idolize him. But whew, if he doesn't do what we want, why should I lift my hands to you today? So Greek mindset. We feel, we think, we choose, and then maybe sometimes we act. Hebraic or Eastern mind worldview, the highest value is placed on God's word and then a choice to believe. I then, because of that, I learn his commandments. I want to know what my dad wants me to do. And linked to that, I'm practicing now to obey them. Then comes my understanding. See, he, Greek way of thinking is like, prove to me until I understand. Hebraic one goes, God, you're first, you're my king, I obey you, and then maybe sometimes I understand. But I still will obey. And then my emotional satisfaction comes into play. After I putting his, his ways, his thoughts, his words I choose to believe in that regardless. 
Their worship was a continuous way of life. If you think about it, if I'm always having to ask God to prove, to continually prove to me something, I'm not going to always want to worship that because it sounds like he's going to be a little bit fickle. And that's what the, the Greeks' gods were, is that their gods were fickle. They were like, eh. And they changed so many times in terms of the different gods that they were like, yeah, today I feel like I need, so I'm going to go to this god. And then another day would be like, yeah, you know, I'm not having any children, so let me go and worship the god of fertility. But God is unchanging. We're the ones who change. He is the same as before he created us, and he is the same now today, and he will continue to be the same, although never ending in our discovery of him. So ancient Hebrew would line up their thinking with Scripture. Don't we do it the other way around? We're waiting for Scripture to line up to our way of thinking. So we're looking for proof in the Bible, whereas Hebraic thinking would go, if this is what God says, I now have to align my thinking to that. They never saw... So another area where in terms of worshipers, and this is where we see in churches today. So worship and service were considered one. So somebody who was in service to God was seen as a worshiper of God. Greek worship is an event. So we come to church on a Sunday. We have praise and worship. It's an event. And then we participate depending on how we feel that day. But a Greek mind, I mean, a Hebraic mindset would be when I'm washing the dishes, when I am serving my family, when I'm sweeping the floor, when I'm speaking to my children, or being with my husband, I am worshiping God. And I'm going to unpack that a little more through the image that we are image bearers of God, why that is such an important thing. So I feel like we need such a mind, a paradigm shift of our thinking to align ourselves because the lenses that we are wearing are too individualistic, are too emotional, too much like you need to prove something to me, God, because we forget who is God and who's the creator. Hebraic mindset is first faith, which is where do you place your loyalty? First faith. Then we choose to believe. That's a loyalty thing. We act on that. And then we feel satisfied. He has a beautiful quote by Caroline Leaf. So this is about community. You know, our, our faith and I said this to the foundations group, we think it's private. It's not private. Personal, highly personal. But our faith is not private. We've been taught that our faith is a private thing. Actually, it's not. It's community-bound. They did studies. I love Caroline Leaf stuff because it's not like it's something new. She's, the science world is just going, 
oh, wow, this is amazing. And God's going, yeah, it's my Bible. They are just proving what God has written for millennia. Amazingly, it's been found that people, when people sing together in worship to God as in a choir, well, let's take this morning, we were, there's these beneficial effects that happen to our hearts. But actually, this is amazing, and they've, they've tested this, that their heartbeats become synchronized. In other words, their hearts beat as one. Now, who do you think, when we worship, our heartbeats synchronize with? If you can picture that when you're in worship and you come as a community, it's not individualistic you on your own, how you're feeling. It's not about that. It's about when you come together and you choose to put your faith in who God says he is and you worship that element of who he is and everybody comes with that mindset, we literally all beat as one because we synchronize with him. Can you imagine that we have this way of thinking? So when we go home and we're in our homes and worship is something where we see, where we are synchronized with each other because we're synchronized with God, because we have chosen to believe, we've chosen to stand on our faith of God says who he is and not asking him to continually prove himself to us. So I've spoken about community but actually, I've kind of given you this little nudge of what it is to be an imager of God or to bear the image of God. So what does it mean to be human in God's eyes? So remember, we're looking at this from the perspective of God, not how you're feeling about yourself today. So one of the main ideas that the ancient writers bring across especially in Genesis, is that humans are made in God's image. We literally have heard that, that we are these image bearers. What sets us apart, what is different about us, say, to a cat and a dog? And, you know, maybe less hair, but some people might not be able to say that. No, I'm, te I'm teasing, I'm teasing. Maybe, yeah, or cats. <laughs> okay, let's read. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Let us make humankind in our image, after our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move on the earth. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what does that mean? It's kind of a little confusing. Who thinks they understand what the image of God is? Who thinks they have an idea of what it could be? So maybe it's based on Oh, I think I took out a, a slide. All right, so that word salem is the word that they use for the word image. Now, you saw that little nudge there. So that word actually can be translated into idol. <gasps> really? Yeah. 
why on earth would God, why would they use a word that means idol? That's interesting. It's actually only reserved for two things, and we're going to unpack them on. One is idol, and the other one is kings. Kings make more sense, idols don't make any sense. So in, let's unpack what an idol was in the ancient world, because remember, that's their context. They are unpacking using words that they know the culture around them would understand. So we all know that they, what idols were placed in temples. Okay, in this instance, we're talking about false idols, don't worry. So, this is what idols meant for them in their culture. It was a reflection. So, it was a statue, most likely. They had poles where they carved things out of. So, when they looked at that, what did they see? They saw, not, they didn't literally believe that that was a god, or they believed it was an embodiment of their god. So, it was a reflection. It was meant to reflect the god that they were Worshipping. It was a mediating representation of that particular God's power and presence. Okay. So, oh, I did this in foundations. The guys are used to me. I press things. <laughs> okay. So, that's what they had in their heads when they used this word Salem. Now, let's look at the other... So the other thing that this was worked was a, a title used for a king, which is interesting. So King Solomon, when he was born, okay, I won't do that now. All right, I'll do it later. So kings in those days, and I think, um, Derek, you brought this up in the pre-meeting. Kings in those days, these guys maybe went a little too far in how, you know, in their belief in who they were. So they were seen as special and chosen, the ruler who represented their God. That's what a king was. They ruled and reigned on behalf of their God. And they had the authority to tell others what to do and define what was good and evil. Some of these guys took it a little too far. Some of these guys took it as that they were actually gods. We, we're not going to go there. So how does this tie into you and me? How does this tie into what God is wanting us to understand about who we are as image bearers? Is he saying that we are false idols? Is it saying that we are kings? Now, there is some in Scripture that say that we are kings. Does it not? Let's go on. This is exciting. How do we image God? All right. Waiting for the clouds to... This is all Sean's genius. Okay. okay. All right. Do you believe it's based on our abilities? So, intelligence, reasoning, emotions, communication. What's more? Maybe it's spirit and soul because we have a conscience. Maybe it's our creativity. The problem with that is if you unpack it, I think some animals can be more clever than people, right? Or maybe it's reasoning. 
What about emotions? We have two dogs. One is super clever and one is not. And the super clever one can communicate pretty well. There's an element of communication that he uses to let me know. Like our cats, we know when those guys are hungry. Why? They communicate to us. Have you ever had a hungry cat? Well, I mean, he, Jordan has a boy cat. He looks like Jordan. He's a ginger. And he literally eats like Jordan. He's always hungry. So you, he's always meowing for food. He's communicating. <laughs> Interestingly enough, Michael Heiser says that the Bible indicates that some animals may have a soul. I don't know about that, but that's interesting. Conscience. Have you ever said to a dog when they've chewed up something, what have you done? And they're like, they have some kind of understanding that they've done something wrong. You look at how they train monkeys and that. So maybe it's not necessarily on abilities. Maybe it's not intelligence. Animals have emotions. When I lock my dog up and I let him back in again, he, he gets pretty excited. That's an emotion. They get scared. So maybe it's not based on that. So what is, now let's unpack why they were using those words. So we have, I have come to the conclusion that it cannot be on our abilities. So what is it? What does that they mean? It is based on, can you believe it, our status. God has never said to any one of the animals, this is my child. Although I know some people treat their animals like children. Maybe I have six children, maybe I don't. We reflect God as an image bearer. We are not gods, but we certainly do reflect him. Um, I don't know who said that we are like these angled mirrors. Who's that? N.T. Wright says that we are like angled mirrors. Where if we are angled right, we literally reflect God. So if our vision is on him, we reflect him. We actually are the representation here on earth of not only his presence, but his power. Every day, all the time, it says Christ in you. Not sometimes, not when we feel like it. All the time. We are literally called, we are mandated by God to rule and reign on his behalf under his authority. We don't rule under our authority, it's his. But we are mandated to rule and reign here on earth. So in, all, in other words, to be human is literally to image God. So we can take away the fact that this has got nothing to do with our gender. It's got nothing to do with our race. It's got nothing to do with our abilities. It's got nothing to do with our age. From the moment a child is conceived, they are image bearers. They bear the image of God. I know there's some ladies here who are carrying babies. They carry the very image and reflect the very image of God. 
That's why life is so precious to him. That's why our lives, every life, every human is incredibly sacred. So what has this got to do with the gospel? Our mandate, as I said, is we are God's kingly priests. So we're not idols in where we become the thing to be worshipped, but we are caretakers of a sacred space. We are his counsel, and we are his administrators here in this earthly realm. And we are meant to rule and reign on his behalf. Doesn't that take your identity of who you are to another whole level? Doesn't it, like, you, you can do this just by being and standing. Think about it. It's not about your ability. It isn't about what you do. It's about who you are. And I'm praying that as I speak, that Holy Spirit comes right now and he just removes veils over people's heads where the lies come in where you're going, oh, but I made such a mess up. Don't worry, I'm going to get to that now. Our free will is always in imperfection. God never was shocked by that. He, he, He had this choice to make. He had a choice to make human beings. If he made us without free will, without freedom, without an ability to choose, we wouldn't truly be able to love him. Okay, so we all know this. The amazing thing is he he thought about this and he knew and he had a plan. So Gary mentioned last week about we are living in this perpetual groundhog day. If you read the Bible, it's like Adam and Eve sin. Whoops. Let's do it again. Next day. And next, and next, and next. And then you and I, even though we have Christ in us and we have Holy Spirit, we still mess it up. Guess what? God's not worried about that. He never, our, his grace and our salvation is never about our perfection or our performance. It cannot be based on that because it's got nothing to do with us. So this dominion mandate that, I'm going back. This dominion mandate is that we image God by doing, and this is where our job comes into play. We image God by doing what he would do, when he would do it, with the same motivation that he would be doing it. How do we know what God wants to do and how do we know what his motivation is if we don't read his word? If we want to know what God, how he ticks, what makes him think, what do you do when you fall in love with someone? You want to spend as much time as possible with them. Yes, it is slightly different. But you know what? One of the things is we get to know God for who he is through reading his word, but we also get to know God who he is through being in community. We cannot define for ourselves what good and evil is. That's what Adam and Eve did. So when we come to him with our Greek way of thinking, 
and we're asking him to prove something, what are we asking him to do? We're saying, well, you define your good and evil according to my version of what that is. We are asking God, well, I'm not satisfied with what you're saying and what you're doing. So I need you, the king, the creator of all, to come down to my vision of what I think you should be doing. I do do this with God. I'm like, listen, dude, this whole thing with, that happened with Jordan, I, I would have done it another way. Because, you know, I know best. I, wouldn't, I would have, like, made it easier for him. I would have said, hey, George, you're in UJ. And then he starts. But God knew the journey that my son had to go on. He also, you know, we like to remove suffering from, from our lives. We really, like the parenting nowadays I've noticed is like, oh, I can't let my child cry because that would be awful for them. I can't let them feel any pain and I can't let them be bored for goodness sake. Why? Because they'll bug me. But I mean, that's beside the point. But we can't, we have to continually feed them. Oh, yes, my darling. Yes, my darling. I listened to David Beckham and he has, a, he has three boys and a, a girl. And he's like, he's only said no to his daughter once, and he said after that he'd never do it again because she gave him such a look. I am thinking, oh my word, that poor child. So when she gets into the world, maybe she might not experience it as soon as what us normal people might. Somebody at some point is going to say no to her and she won't know how to respond. God says no to us because he loves us. He's our dad. Sometimes we're going, I want a Lamborghini. Or whatever the thing is. And God's going, oh, you know what, my kid, no. Well, because I'm like Dylan's age and I can't reach the pedals and I don't know how to drive a car. God often says no to us because we're imperfect. Guess what? The gospel is actually for our imperfection because it's not based on us. It's based on Jesus. It's incredible. Think about it. It takes away all this pressure to be able to be that perfect person. How many people have you heard when you talk about Jesus to them and they go, listen, I hear what you're saying, but let me first get my life right and then I'll come to Jesus. Or people who have back, back, backslidden in church and they're going, mm, let me first be able to get a handle on whatever's causing my pain, then I'll come back to Jesus. That's asking God to prove to us something first. He's, he's okay with our imperfections. He's okay that we don't get it right every day. David, King David, he messed up like big time. He killed a guy because he slept with the guy's wife. And yet God says, to him, says about him that he is a man after my own heart. Why? Because he turned in repentance and he just continually, out of his imperfection, loved God and wanted to do what God wanted him to do. And he, it was about his heart posture towards God, not about his performance. That's why our image bearing is not about our attributes. 
God isn't a robot. His original intention was to arm us with free will so we would be able to choose him, choose love. Do you know the reason is that he could have, when the enemy came into the garden, the Nakash came into the garden of Eden, and he said, and he, he, he got to deceive Eve, and then Eve helped deceive Adam. If God had said, well, that's it, they messed up. And that was in paradise, what I originally thought was perfection. God didn't go, well, that's it. You guys have had one chance, you're out. He knew that if he did that, if he took away our free will, the Nakash would have won. The deceiver would have won the war. His intention was that he didn't want humankind because the angels or the gods or the Elohim that fell actually were jealous of what God wanted to do with the human race. We have redemption. They don't. So only God can perfectly possess his character and nature. We are only meant to reflect it. The more we are in his presence, the more we reflect who he is. That's literally all we have to do. We don't have to be God more and choose to try and be more kind. I remember there was a season where I was like, I was so tired having four young kids and I was just tired all the time and hormones and blah. And I was like, oh, I have to be, t- I have to be more kind. I-, I couldn't produce it. But if I was with God and when I read his word, And when I focused on him, I naturally became more kind because I reflected that from him. That's how he's designed it to be. And we also have to understand that we are always capable of disobedience. God knows that. He's not shocked by it, even after salvation. So you're all let off the hook in terms of performance and ability. Michael Heiser wrote this, evil does not flow from the first first domino that God himself toppled. Rather, evil is the perversion of God's good gift of free will. It arises from the choices made by imperfect images, not from God's prompting or his predestination. God does not need evil, but he has the power to take evil that flows from our free will decisions, human or otherwise, and to use it to produce good and his glory through the obedience of his loyal images, who are his hands and feet on the ground now. Our key is obedience. And sometimes it's hard. We need to learn to practice obedience to him. That's why the Hebraic mindset is so amazing is because they choose faith first. They put it first. The ironic thing is if we, so you know, our attention, somebody made the comment, whatever you give attention to, whatever you give power to is the thing that you become. So if our mindsets are continually on our failures, let's take that for instance. Guess what you're going to become? 
failure. If your mindset is on, if you're looking, let's take the coronavirus, because that's kind of where a lot of people are at at the moment. Social media is there, at least. So Gary came to me the other day, and he said that they used to have these cards that you would scan yourself into going to the, um, the different offices. Now they have fingerprints. So it's much easier. You don't have to, you know, if you forget your card at home, it's fine. You can't really forget your finger. But now there's a problem because of the coronavirus. Because of fear, what are people looking at? What are people idolizing? What are people placing above their faith in God? Now, either you walk around with hand sanitizers or you don't want to get into your office because of fear. What about human touch? To all those Enneagram sixes out there who struggle with fear, who are you placing your faith into? The Enneagram fives can't leave me out. Where, where are you getting your information from? Is it from social media? You can't, you actually don't know which kind of input to trust anymore. We don't know. The thing we can trust is when we read the Bible, that has truth in it. So we learned very quickly that we fail at this, and that's okay. Do you know that God's sovereignty is, he has ordained certain things to, to happen. But in many ways, he's left the means up to us, because we are his representation. I don't think he's too hung up about how we get to the means, but he will lead us to the means. We don't have to be hung up at getting every, every step perfect. But what we do need to do is practice guiding, being, allowing him to lead our steps and, and surrendering to his ways. An ancient Israelite would have understood the way that God has decided something is his way, and it's okay. His rule over human affairs is good. And that they would have chosen to accept his decision, or most of them, some of them. They would have failed at that too. You see, the thing is that we belong, and I think we, we in the Western mind, we forget, I'm going to bring up the aspect of a king now. We forget that Jesus is our king. We love the fact that he's our savior. Oh, Jesus rescued me. I get to go to heaven. We, we don't necessarily like the fact that he is our king. Why? What does the king do? He rules and he reigns. And what do we do? Who are we? We come under his rule and reign. You know, this world doesn't like being told about submission. This world doesn't like being told that 
there is someone else who has a better way. We, we need to follow that way. We think we know better. Greek much? When we ask Jesus to prove his love to us, do we understand that he doesn't need to do that because he literally has done that? If you are questioning God's love for you, go and read the Gospels and read what Jesus did and went through on the cross for you. And then you preach the Gospel back to yourself that he died and he rose again and he lived a life for you. He doesn't need to prove a thing to us. He's already done that. He doesn't need to prove anything to our logic. He is king. He doesn't need to prove that he's a good leader because he is the king of kings. We need to tell our mindsets. We need to tell the lies that come into our heads that he is king. We come under that. We settle. We surrender to truth. And the thing is that he doesn't even need to keep on telling us that he loves us, even though he does, and he shows his love to us in ways. Sometimes it's silence. Oh. Do you know that there's a, word, there's a scripture, I think it's in Psalms, that actually says God loves us in his silence. And we're going, God, speak to us. And he's like, when Elijah was in, uh, after Jezebel, you know, he had like, he had like one, like an epic contest with 400, was it 400 or 450 Baal worshippers, scary people. 450, killed them all. I mean, God showed his power. <laughs> and then Jezebel, she sends him a letter. It's like somebody getting, sending you an SMS after you've like, You've had a major victory, and then you get an SMS from somebody, and you're like, oh, and then you retreat. This is what happens to Elijah. And he perceives that in the whirlwind, in the, the earthquake, and the, the thunder, that God's voice wasn't there. All in the tangible, epic manifestations of God. And we all think it's in the um, still, small, quiet voice. They've actually, that translation's not quite right. It's actually in the sheer silence that he hears and encounters God. The Hebrew language. So sometimes God in his sheer silence, we encounter him. So we learn to imitate him because we love him. I mean, my... Ella has a friend, Melissa, and they, they're very good friends and they love spending time together. And I always know when Ella's been with Melissa because she sounds like Melissa. They all kind of, they kind of merge into this little giggly, very loud, like toddlers. I mean, you've seen that when toddlers, wow, she's 11. Shh, don't tell her. I always know when Gary's mom has spoken to her family in Scotland because her accent, Scottish accent, gets stronger. What do we do when we spend time with people? We start to reflect them. So if we start spending time with God every day, is a reason why he says, he describes his word as if it's food. You're supposed to eat it every day. You need it. It's nourishment. When we imitate him, even in our imperfections, we act on his behalf. 
It comes out naturally. We don't have to try harder. It affects our relationships. It affects how we are at work. It affects how we see our perspectives. And then it affects how we see the lost. And this is something that God's challenged me with. Because I'm an introvert. I don't like small talk. It's not like I'm going to, it's not like I don't like small talk. It's literally I don't know what to say. Nothing comes to mind. It's like, how's the weather? And that's as far as I go. Or like I meet somebody and it's like, so how many kids do you have? And then they answer, and if the person is an introvert like me and they answer one, like I have four, but they don't extend the conversation, I'm so stuck. I don't know what else to say. And then you find I will just disappear. I'll just walk off. <laughs> but you know, when I'm being with God and when I am with Him and I start reflecting Him, I become an ambivert. I can operate outside of my introvertness. And suddenly I'm able to connect with people. And then I'll stop on the side of the road. I remember the one time <laughs> I felt so silly, but I was like, God made me brave. So I stopped on the side of the road, and this lady was walking past, and I felt Holy Spirit say, she needs a hug. I'm like, you serious? Uh-huh. I was like, okay, let's do this. God, I stopped the car. I mean, this poor woman, I drive an H1. It's a big car. And here's this white lady coming up and going, hi. And like, I mean, we are... We do stupid things for God, but it, in that moment, it didn't matter to me. It didn't matter that I didn't know her. It didn't matter who she was. But the, the, matter, the thing was that God wanted me to connect with her image of him in her. And I hugged her. I don't think she probably never recovered. Maybe she was scared to walk on the side of the road again. But she was impacted by that somehow. That's what I'm trusting. We don't have to prove or do anything to be children of God. We simply are. So when we are with them every day and there are times when you're feeling like you're being distracted by life and circumstances, think, oh, you know what? I bear the image of God inside of me. And I want to go and be with my father. I want to find out what makes him tick so that I can impact the world. That is bringing the gospel. We don't always have to say those words that are the gospel because we are the gospel, because we carry his image, and we igniting things in people that they didn't know they had for a brief moment in time, and those are seeds we plant. Do you know that we simply cannot fail because we have Jesus? Yes, we will mess it up, and it will be completely imperfect, our journey, but we cannot fail at this. God in us. Jesus was called his God's beloved son. And I was talking about the king. And we all, well, most of us should know the story about when Jesus was baptized and God said, this is my, so everybody heard the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased with. We understand that. I mean, you've heard of that, haven't you? We, don't you love the, you know, it's beloved. So sentimental and emotional, hey? Do you know that that word does not mean what we think it means? Yes, of course God was pleased with Jesus. Of course Jesus was his son. Of course he was loved and his beloved. But it was more than that. So that they understood what God was saying. That word beloved 
If you go to Solomon, this is what I was trying to, I brought earlier, was that Solomon, when he was conceived, through Nathan the prophet, God said, um, his mom and dad chose to call him Solomon. But Nathan the prophet said, you will call him Jedidiah. That meant beloved. What that was saying was that Solomon was his David, because it had a link to David's name, if you unpack the, the technical Hebrew grammar, blah, blah, blah. So what, they, what Nathan the prophet was saying was, this boy, he is in the line, he's the right, legitimate king in the line of David. Okay. That same word God uses over Jesus. And what he was saying to the audience, what he's saying to us, Jesus, this, yes, he's my son, but he's also my legitimate king for the new kingdom that I'm inaugurating, and that is what's coming through. Do you understand that we have very dark lenses when we read the word? Because we have our cultural lens. So this morning, I want you to all close your eyes because I want God to do a miracle in us. I want God to remove veils, cultural veils of our heads. And I want him to start to enlighten us when we read the word that it's not these boring words that don't make sense, but it starts to come alive. So one of the questions that Holy Spirit's been asking me is, where does my loyalty lie? And I'm going to unpack that more next week. But it's a question you can ask yourself. Where does your loyalty lie? Is it with Jesus? Which kingdom are you serving? Because you know there's only two. Whether you're South African, whether you're English, Afrikaans, whether you come from Europe, there are only two kingdoms. Jesus' kingdom, King Jesus, and the kingdom of darkness, where the prince of the air rules. So I'm going to do a little tool with you. If you don't want to, it's a a prayer. We call them tools in uh, freedom sessions. Just to help us align our thoughts with God. It's called... Divine editing, where, we, where God edits out a pattern of thinking that isn't lining up with His. And where our thoughts and, and deep kind of long-term patterns of thinking is stored is right at the bottom of our brain here. I can't pronounce the word because it's a scientific term and I always stumble over them. So if you want to, you don't have to, put your hand behind the back of your head like this. If you want to, if you're tired of not seeing what God is saying, if you're tired of, you want to think in a different way. So close your eyes. It's between you and God. So Holy Spirit, won't you remove all patterns, judgments, and mindsets that don't line up with you? Don't line up with the way God thinks. 
And won't you replace them now with the mind of Christ? You can put your hands down. And this week, let's make a conscious choice every day. And sometimes it must be more than every day to consciously choose to put our faith above our feelings, above our circumstances. Constantly choose. And when you start to feel that old familiar, what you thought was a friend but actually isn't a friend kind of voice that's telling you you're worthless, you have no value. So you know what? I'm an image bearer. I bear, I image God. That is who I am. Doesn't matter if I fail, that is who I am. And that's how you replace truth with a lie. You've got to choose to go, uh-uh, foot sick. Humble. Get out. I am not choosing to align my thoughts with the world's way of thinking, with the enemy. The Bible says that I am the image of God. The Bible's God says I reflect Him. To be human is to be an image bearer, and that is what I'm choosing today.